0: This means poor visibility, security gaps, and added risk. That's why Cloudflare created the first-ever connectivity cloud. Visit cloudflare.com to protect your business everywhere you do business. Spanish TV is temporarily replaced by Russian programming. APT-20 Violin Panda is back and playing a familiar tune. Rancor against Cambodia, the U.S. Congress gets frosty with China and Russia, how Zeppelin ransomware spreads, due diligence in M&A, Germany's BSI warns of an Emotet campaign, a suspect in the Dark Overlord case is arraigned in St. Louis, and the FBI collars a guy who ratted himself out over social media. From the CyberWire studios at DataTribe, I'm Dave Bittner with your CyberWire summary for Thursday, December 19th, 2019. Spain's state-owned broadcaster TVE says that a portal they'd inadvertently left open was exploited last week by parties unknown to air an RT-produced interview with self-exiled Catalan separatist leader Carles Puigdemont. Reuters asked and RT says they didn't do it. Furthermore, RT, which is short for Russia Today, a Kremlin-controlled media outlet, says they don't know who did it. I give you my word, said RT's editor-in-chief, Margarita Simonyan. In fairness to RT, anyone can waltz through an open portal. Fox IT has been looking at an operation they call Wokao, a China-based collection effort that's prospecting energy, technology, and healthcare targets in at least 10 countries, including France, the U.K., the U.S., Germany, and Italy. They've concluded with medium confidence that the group behind Wokau is APT-20, a Beijing-controlled hacking crew that had been relatively quiet for the past few years. Also known as Violin Panda, APT-20 was particularly active between 2009 and 2014, specifically against universities, healthcare, and defense targets. It's now resurfaced, Fox IT says and has resumed industrial and economic espionage. Wokau is said to be a mildly indelicate Chinese epithet which will translate to nuts, not only because we're a family show, but also because tomorrow marks the 75th anniversary of the beginning of the siege of Baston, and that's what General McAuliffe said to his German opposite number when he was approached with a demand for surrender. Palo Alto Network's Unit 42 has released a follow-up to its earlier report on Rancor, a Chinese cyber espionage unit that pays particular attention to targets mostly in Cambodia. Rancor is unusual in that it's taken some pains to craft novel strains of malware that hadn't been seen before. Unit 42 doesn't say which organizations within the Cambodian government were targeted, beyond saying to CyberScoop that the targets are the sorts of agencies you'd expect an intelligence service to take an interest in. Unit 42 tells CyberScoop that there's an irony beneath the apparent persistence, the expenditure of resources, and the care taken to craft bespoke malware. None of the efforts to penetrate Cambodian networks have been fully successful. The U.S. Congress is in a stern mood with respect to China and Russia. The Washington Post reports widespread skepticism on Capitol Hill that Beijing can be trusted to live up to the explicit security guarantees, still less the implicit ones, in any trade accords so far negotiated. And Reuters notes that an unusually stiff sanctions bill directed against Russia cleared the Senate Foreign Relations Committee yesterday. BlackBerry Silence researchers announced the discovery of Russia-connected Zeppelin ransomware last week. Yesterday, Morphosec offered some fresh insight into how Zeppelin is propagated by leveraging the ConnectWise remote desktop application. With all the recent attention to ransomware attacks that have been hitting municipal governments and healthcare companies lately, and especially with the recent trend of such attacks being accompanied by information theft, it's now considered prudent to regard yourself as a breach victim if you've found yourself infected with ransomware. There's another disturbing ransomware trend too, this one noticed by Radware. When a private equity firm acquires a company, it of course issues a press release and announces the acquisition to the world. This is in the natural economic order of things. It appears, however, that such announcements are also alerting extortionists to the probability that the new portfolio company is also probably newly cash-rich, and a ransomware attack has often followed in the wake of such an acquisition. It happens on familiar Willie Sutton-esque grounds. That's where the money is. Radware advises P.E. firms that they should take this as an incentive to perform effective due diligence on on the companies they plan to acquire. The team at GitLab are celebrating the one-year anniversary of their bug bounty program. Along the way, they've learned a thing or two about running a program like this, calibrating incentives, response times, and so on. James Ritchie is security manager for application security at GitLab.
1: When we first opened it back in December 12th, uh, 2018, we got a huge response you know, from the community. Um, I think we received over 1,300 reports from over 500 security researchers. We awarded over $500,000 in bounties um, since going public in the past year. So, yeah, we we definitely learned a lot, uh, a lot of lessons for sure. Any uh, bumps in the road along the way that you can share? Uh, yeah, absolutely. I mean, one of the biggest things we learned was that, you know, we needed to scale Um, You know, there's so many reports and reporters, and there's only a handful of us on the GitLab side. So if we didn't scale, then we'd definitely be smothered by the volume of reports that we receive. 1,300 is is quite a lot. And our answer to that was to, you know, uh, develop as much automation as possible, uh, specifically uh, scaling our communication and our procedures, For example, uh, we were able to reduce our average time to first response from uh, over 48 hours to less than seven hours. Um, Besides scaling, another big lesson we learned was that, you know, we needed to increase HackerOne engagement and uh, keep it at a high level. There's so many programs for the reporters to choose from on HackerOne. So why should they come to ours? You know, why should they stick with it? You know, you're competing for the attention of reporters from over like a thousand other programs uh, on HackerOne for them to choose from. An important thing we learned was to listen to the feedback from reporters that are currently engaged in our program. Um, One of the top suggestions from them was to um, uh, basically they wanted to speed up bounty payouts. And so, you know, previously, we were rewarding bounties once an issue was resolved, which that could be, you know, one month, that could be three months, it really depended on the severity of the issue. And so after listening to that feedback, back in September, we changed how we reward bounties. So now we pay a, a partial bounty of $1,000 upfront at the time of when we triaged the report. And mm. then the remainder would be paid once the reports resolved or 90 days had passed, whichever had came first.
0: You all recently made some adjustments to the bounty price. What drove that decision?
1: Over time, the security of our product has strengthened. And so essentially, we wanted to incentivize seeing more high and critical severity reports in the program. So back in November, we raised the the bounties uh, specifically for high and critical uh, vulnerabilities. So I think for criticals, we raised it from 12K to 20K. And then for highs from 7K to 10K. And, you know, it wasn't much of a surprise, but, the, you know, higher bounties is one of the biggest factors for increasing uh, hacker engagement in the bug <laughs> bounty program.
0: Yeah. Mon- money talks, I guess. You c- get their attention. Absolutely. Yeah. What, what, what does having a program like this uh, say about GitLab itself? You know, the, the way that you choose to, um, to communicate and, and take on a project like this?
1: Our mission statement at GitLab is that everyone can contribute, and that doesn't only mean through, uh, you know, contributing code to GitLab itself. That, that also means contributing by, uh, you know, submitting vulnerabilities to our program. So that's a big part of, you know, of, you know we, want, we want to be open and public for everyone to contribute.
0: Looking back on the past year, are you satisfied with how it's going overall? Do
1: you feel like it's been successful? Oh, I would definitely say so, yes. I mean, considering the amount of volume of reports we received and then also the depth of those reports as well, we've received so many um, good findings. The level of technique uh, has really surprised us on, on many of the findings, and many of those were from new reporters as well. So I think it's been a success overall.
0: What are your uh, recommendations for other organizations who may be considering you know, heading down a similar path?
1: I would say start it earlier than later, definitely have a, a bug bounty program. And I also encourage them to be transparent about those security issues as well. I think it's an important thing to show, though it's not an easy balancing confidentiality and transparency, um, but you know, a lot of it comes down to time, like you know when they release the details. Like for example, at GitLab, we release um, the vulnerability details 30 days after a patch has been uh, published essentially. The thing is is that you know no one product or application is 100% secure but uh, I believe that by being transparent it illustrates our commitment to uh, securing the product and the company. you know you can see how many resources we've invested in security. you can see the vulnerability details 30 days after it's been released. you can see you know how we fixed it, when the issue was reported, how long it took us to fix it. You know, maybe other companies, by staying secret about all of these things, A, they're not being kept accountable, and B, we don't know how committed they are to securing their products. I think being transparent about security issues, you know, truly illustrates how invested we are in securing GitLab. That's James Ritchie from GitLab. Germany's
0: BSI Security Agency, the Federal Office for Security and Information Technology, has issued a warning that criminals misrepresenting themselves as BSI operators are distributing the Emotet banking trojan in a spam campaign. The phishing emails contain either malicious attachments or malicious links, and they arrive as replies to emails the user had sent earlier, which the BSI says tends to lend them credibility. Emotet is attributed to the gang Proofpoint Tracks as TA 542 and CrowdStrike as Mummy Spider, but that gang is also active in the criminal to criminal market and is willing to rent the Trojan to other operators. Nathan Wyatt, a British subject accused of being part of the Dark Overlord gang, was extradited to the U.S. and arraigned yesterday in the St. Louis courtroom of the U.S. District Court for the Eastern District of Missouri. He was charged with aggravated identity theft, threatening to damage a protected computer, and conspiring to commit those and other fraud offenses. Mr. Wyatt entered a plea of not guilty. The Justice Department describes his alleged offenses as "...remotely accessing the computer networks of multiple U.S. companies without authorization, obtaining sensitive records and information from those companies, and then threatening to release the company's stolen data unless the companies paid a ransom in Bitcoin." So the dark overlord is, to sum up, an extortion gang. So how are suspects collared? Well, often someone snitches. But nowadays, if the crook, the alleged crook, we hasten to say, wants to know why he or she has come to the attention of John or Jane Law, alleged crook needs look no farther than the mirror, or, more accurately, that elaborately composed mirror that is their presence on social media. For your consideration... One Orlando M. Henderson, a presumably now former employee of Wells Fargo, resident in California, was apprehended by the FBI on suspicion of robbing Wells Fargo. What clever CSI-style scientific inferences led the Bureau to Mr. Henderson? DNA? Drone surveillance shots? Matching biometric heartbeat signatures? Nope, nope, and nope. They just happened across his rap performance on Instagram, in which Mr. Henderson disported himself with a big stack of cash and a Kalashnikov battle rifle. And if the Benjamins and the AK weren't enough, there was also the Facebook posting of himself posing in front of an expensive, if admittedly sort of vulgar, Mercedes ride. Also, cash was missing from a local Wells Fargo's vaults. You don't have to be Sherlock Holmes or even Columbo to put those three together and conclude that a conversation with the gentleman might be in order. And I'm pleased to be joined once again by David DeFore. He's the Vice President of Engineering and Cybersecurity at Webroot. David, it's always great to have you back. You and your team at Webroot recently published a mid-year threat report for 2019. Can you take us through what were some of the key findings
2: there? Oh, David, as always, great to be back. One of the first things we saw is trusted domains. Um, You know, the HTTPS with the in your browser everybody sees the green lock in all the major browsers that shows that you're on a secure connection well just because you're on a secure connection doesn't mean you're on a secure site so a lot of hackers are starting to really use um, https heavily i mean it's been in use by malicious um, folks for a while but it's becoming more and more prominent and so basically uh i I like to kid but just to to put it out there people are securing uh through through https the hacks that they're implementing on you so you're getting securely hacked which i don't know if that makes you feel better or not (laughs) right while the hacks going on exactly data your data is safe in transit exactly you can you can be rest assured that the hacker is making sure your data can't be compromised Right. right um, but what we saw, uh, a nearly uh, 25% of malicious URLs, you know, URLs are, the domain is the, you know, davidbitner.com or DaveDufour.com. That's the domain. Mm-hmm. We saw that 25% of malicious URLs, which are like that .com slash sports slash video games. Those 25% of malicious URLs are hosted on trusted domains. So you can actually look at the domain and believe the website is good, but a hacker has actually accessed the back end of that domain and deployed malicious software there that if you click on that, it's going to infect your machine. So it's something you've really mm-hmm. got to be aware of. Not all trusted domains equate to trusted URLs. Now, you were
0: also tracking some stuff here with Windows 7.
2: Oh, yeah. Windows 7. Um, look, w- Windows 7 was a great operating system. Um, it's just very antiquated, um, lots of malware um, on Windows. Uh, 7. Uh, it, it's really time for folks to start thinking about upgrading to Windows 10. It's a great operating system as well. I'm not advocating for Microsoft, but we are talking about uh, the Windows platforms here. We are seeing the exploits uh, in Windows 7 have grown over 75%, and we continue to see malware taking advantage of uh, those vulnerabilities in Windows 7.
0: What do you say to those folks who are in a situation where it's not necessarily easy to upgrade? I'm, I'm thinking of people in industrial situations, you know, those kinds of things where that Windows machine
2: may be tied to other devices. That is always a great and tricky question, David. Uh, because if it is an industrial machine that potentially can't be upgraded uh, because of the fact that it's running um, equipment, you have to evaluate your risk allowance. Can you take it off of a public network so that people can't get to it um, through through the Internet or through your network and some other mechanism and make those determinations? Maybe you have to work with your vendor to get it upgraded because you're, you are exposed because it does need to be online. But you need to evaluate that and, and be very knowledgeable of the risk that you're open to. And and that's a point I want to make there. A lot of times people just kind of put their head in the sand. Okay, so you've got a Windows machine. Um, it's running Windows 7. There's potential for exploits. But you've got a business decision because you got to run your business that you're going to let that potential sit there. Well, maybe you need to invest in some tools that monitor that machine at a higher level to make sure it's not being exploited. So there's things you can do, but the number one thing is evaluate your situation.
0: All right. Well, it's the Mid-Year Threat Report. You can find it on the WebRoot website. David DeFore, thanks for joining us. Great being here, David. Our amazing CyberWire team is Elliot Peltzman, Peru Prakash, Stefan Vizieri, Kelsey Bond, Tim Nodar, Joe Kerrigan, Carol Terrio, Ben Yellen, Nick Filecki, Gina Johnson, Bennett Mo, Chris Russell, John Petrick, Jennifer Iben, Rick Howard, Peter Kilpie, and I'm Dave Bittner. Thanks for listening. We'll see you back here tomorrow.